welcome adventurer to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. I meant to tell you guys, I might leave the bank. Oh, okay. I have an opportunity at a uh, at a bicycle plant where we where they manufacture bicycles. Oh wow! They're, the the yeah, cards? No, 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 no. The actual like two you know two wheels ride on bike. They're thinking about making me the spokesperson. Don't no really? no no don't I don't no don't don't fuck oh, it. do it. Shit. <laughs> 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 I, I told them I might consider taking the job, but I might be too tired. You know, you're not starting this episode off really well. Are you recording this? Uh, oh, yeah, of course. Oh, <clears> Jesus. <throat> hey, welcome, adventurers, to episode 119 of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. This is just Patrick. Hey, King Scott here. And Teacher Ryan is back again. Woo-hoo! Teacher Ryan, it's great to have you back in an episode. This is, is kind of nice. You're a one of us, one of us. <laughs> I've been one of you for a while now. Probably, a, I think we're coming up on like one and a half years, I think. <laughs> Yeah, actually, it's it's been some time, and it's always a pleasure to have you in the studio as you are today. Guys, we've got a big episode. We've got a bunch of banter listed, a bunch of recent adventures, including Masters of the Universe, G.I. Joe, the deck building game, Raise the Flag. I wonder who put that in there. Uh-huh. Ryan, you're going to tell us about Rise of Fenris. We've got Lunar Rush to go over. Top 100 update. Today's 8-bit breakdown is The Veil of Eternity. We're going to look back at Wonderland's War, and then Lena is going to hit us with a globe-trotting signal. We ready to get this on? Yes, Let's we are. Let's do it. Okay, excellent. I'm going to lead this one off because I got a couple cool notifications, cool emails. I got the shipping notification for an age contrived. This was on Kickstarter eh, six or eight months ago. It, relatively quick turnaround. I got the shipping notification for it. I'm all set. Uh-oh. Plus, got my shipping payment collected for Slay the Spire, the board game. Uh, I Scott, I know you've heard of this one before. Ryan, have you ever played uh, Slay the Spire? Of course I have. Yes, that roguelike dungeon crawler deck building game. Yes, exactly. I have. I'm still pretty sure that I don't understand what roguelike means. Well, roguelike is when you go through something and then like when you die or lose, you go back and you start over, but you have more upgrades now. So you just keep on going to the same thing, trying to get further and further each time. And that's what roguelike is. Okay. Why'd they give it a stupid name? Why don't they just call it like upgrade repeating or repeatable roguelike? Where do they come up with that? Because roguelike sounds dangerous. That's true. Oh, don't Google it. Don't Google what roguelike is. You're supposed to just know. <laughs> well, fair enough. It's called roguelike. Anyway, Slay the Spire Adventures, if you haven't played this, we're going back like four years now. It's kind of old news, but it's a game that's essentially a card game. You can get it on Steam. You can get it on like your Xbox Live or whatever the whatever the kids are playing these days. And it's, it's a card game. It's a deck building game. You start with a deck of like, I want to say it's nine cards. So if you take the red character, you get these nine cards to work with and after each uh, quest, after each fight that you're in, you're going to get two new cards to work with. And you can decide to put some in the deck, leave some out of the deck. What are you both grinning about? What is so funny? <laughs> when, I'm when just Scott, grinning yeah, about you can't the happiness. See it. You can't see it, but Scott just like shone a light from under his face on him, and he aged like 40 years <laughs> when he did that. <laughs> All right, do it again for the adventure so they can listen. <laughs> So we can listen? Yeah, they can listen to what the light shining under your face looks like. Wow, that's creepy. Yeah, it is, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) 
I feel like I need to tell ghost stories around a campfire. <laughs> All right, enough. Back to Slay the Spire. Excellent little deck building game. Think, you know, it, it's the kind of game that would be hard to do in a board game form because there's so many random elements that are incorporated. However, they tried it. It's coming. I got my shipping paid and I can't wait for Slay the Spire to show up at my house. I want to put my fingers on these cards and I want to put them on the table and I want to get this feeling of elation from having done so. Metro Runner from Thunderworks is Ooh, live yeah. when we're yeah. as this episode is up there. Scott, we got to look at this one. We got a little peek at the Thunderworks booth back at PAX. Right away, it just screamed me because uh, I like the Netrunner thing, and they go with Metro Runner, so there's Runner in both names. So of course, I gotta like it. I may or may not have backed it already, so that's something to keep in mind there. It's something I'm very much looking forward to, and it's also going to be i think july 2024 they're going to be shipping hopefully oh wow very quick turnaround pretty soon yes yes you know judging by what we saw at pax the game's basically ready yes that's what it looks like definitely what's this one you got on here redline payday you've been talking about this redline game over the last few months i'm gonna skip that right now and just jump on your whole wave of kickstarter my game topper mats uh was taken and they shipped them already and i'll actually be getting in them tomorrow and I've got a gorgeous Egyptian one coming with the pyramids and sphinxes and all this stuff. Really awesome looking mats. And then also getting the pirate one. It looks like a big pirate map with water all around, an island with a big X in the middle. So can't wait to get those on my game topper. I'm a huge fan of pirates. And so like like when you get that on your table, I would love to see a picture of that. I, I mean, that, certainly will get a picture are, for you. And are, they, are these the kind of mats that you slept on at Origins? Yes, yes, they are. <laughs> Scott was hard at work. Oh, my, yes, yes. These are the nice three millimeter neoprene mats, uh, double stitched around the outside. They are super, super mats. Nice. I definitely oh, saw the quality of those, and that's it, it's very fantastic. If you guys haven't seen that, you should definitely try it out whenever you go to a convention. Most definitely, yes, yes. And the great thing about it is, Origins, packs, and I'm sure Gen Con, check them out right there. Now, looking at Redline Payday, Redline we took a look at as one of our recent plays, or my recent play, geez, probably maybe six, seven months ago in one of our episodes. Yeah, it's going back And this is one that it's a collectible card game, but it's fixed, so you don't have to buy packs or anything you get extra packs that they put out with the whole deck. So it's kind of living card game-ish, kind of. But okay. it still feels a little bit like Battletech, but it's not. It really scratches that itch for the old Battletech card game. So you have five different areas in the middle that you're fighting over. You have your different Afrits that they're called, but they can't call them mechs or anything. But really great-looking artwork to it. Great story in the background. Now they're introducing two new factions with the mercenaries and an industrial faction. So the mercenaries, sure, it's going to be the same old freaks that are going to come out and fight. But the industrial ones, these are like, say you found a black topper uh, along the side of the road, wanted to put two legs on it, have the right arm being a backhoe and a big drill for the left arm. That's what you get with the industrial mechs. So they just take what they have that they would use for construction and beat the crap out of you with the, their construction equipment. Just kind of makeshift. Slap <laughs> it together with what you got. 
Yeah, so I'm really looking forward to this. Their Kickstarter is going to be starting in March. So they're getting all the stuff out there for people to take a look at, get the froth going, get the excitement built up. So, of course, I had to jump on that because I'm excited myself about this for whenever it comes out. Can't wait to check it out. I don't know if we'll get a chance to see some cards early on or anything like that, but please stay tuned. You'll be hearing more about that once it comes out, and that's going to be Redline Payday. Scott, well, correct me if I'm wrong. This is a card game. There's no miniatures in here, right? There's no miniatures in it, but there are miniatures that you can get and paint up just for just for fun. Uh, there's not a game right. with the miniatures. So don't think a game like Battletech where you actually have miniatures on a board. This isn't a tactical skirmish on a map. This right. is a card game predominantly. Mm-hmm. That okay. most certainly is, yes. Well, you know what, Scott? I'm actually kind of happy for you. You know, you seem very excited for this game, and it sounds like an incredible game that might be right up your alley. However, I know you're about to talk about something that's not so exciting. It's 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 in regards to news about a game that I very much enjoyed the very first time I played, and I've been playing it ever since. So um, can you tell us about that? Yes, uh, this was something that came up, and it was quite surprising, and I think a lot of people are talking about it. There's a game called Votes for Women. This game is set up, goes through the historical background of what happened during the suffrage, um, suffrage, suffrages. <laughs> it's suffrage city. I know, I know, and I'm starting to go. With you really want to say that? I do. <laughs> we know where you're going with it. Yeah, okay. it takes it's the Women's historical events around the suffrage movement. movement. Sure. Yes. So they're getting ready to print out another edition of it, get out more copies to people. Well, in the glorious way that people look at things anymore, well, Facebook decided that they aren't going to let them advertise on Facebook anymore because they get a thing coming back, an automated response saying, these ads mention a politician or about sensitive social issues which could influence how people vote and may impact the outcome of an election or pending legislation. Mm-hmm. Um, this was something that was just legislated and put into law quite a while ago. And I don't <laughs> think that they're talking about current political situation. Yeah, in the grand scheme of things, I don't think that the wave of gamers that are going to play votes for women are going to be able to affect the entire election of the United States. Mm -hmm. They're looking at the whole campaign. It's a small campaign. They want to finish around $120,000 to get the new prints out. Well, that it's not even, it's not a political thing. You know what? It strikes me as there's an algorithm in place. I don't think that a human actually looked at it and said, oh, no, no, no. I'm guessing that there's an algorithm and there were a hand, there were like enough buzzwords to trip the, Mm -hmm. uh, the warning on the algorithm. And without a human ever actually looking at it, it just went, hey, we're sorry. No good. Yeah. And the thing that they're really upset about is, yes, it was an automated response. And they can't get a hold of a human person to talk about this and get it fixed. It's oh, geez. one of those things where you call and say, well, if you have a complaint about this, press one. Please hold. The wait time will be four days from now. <laughs> and it's just, it, it, it makes no sense. I mean- I can understand how some things could be taken out of place, but you hate to see this happen to this company, and they want to get a game out, and I'm sorry, if you look at it, 
you want to read a book about this movement, about getting women to vote? Or do you want to play a game and learn about it that way? I think a lot more people would get more out of the game and learn it and get an idea what went behind it better than sitting there reading a couple pages of a history book. What Scott is saying is not don't pick up a history book, but at the same time, it's it's a bit more socially... I'm trying to think of words. I'm not very good with words off the, on the top of my head. This is why I write things down. You get more out of the action of playing the game and learning it than just sitting there reading a book. Well, it can be an experiential exercise, it, which in go. teaching, it's the opportunity to experience what what uh, what may have happened to uh, to simulate for students, you know, putting them in the position. What would you do where they have to actually actively think like an individual in that time period? This game might actually present present the players with that scenario so that not only are you learning a bit about it and learning the words, the times, the dates, the names, but you're also feeling it. Right. And sometimes it's hard to yes. get that feeling of, of whatever experience without acting it out in some capacity, which I'll make two points about this one. Uh, well, yes, it is a shame. Absolutely. It, uh, but uh, point number one, in a weird way, this could end up being a decent thing for that company because this is getting more coverage. You know what mm, I mean? Like true. we're That's talking fair. about it. You know, every podcast, every, every, uh, everybody that creates content, I'm sure is mentioning it in some capacity. So all the people listening to all these content creators are hearing about this game. Now it's a great game. Aside from that, I, I've been wanting to play it since Josh talked about it since he said it was one of his favorites of last year. Two, the only downside I've heard about this game is that somebody has to play, we'll say, the opposition, the oppressor. Yeah. Somebody's got to be the man putting the ladies down. Uh, Ryan's shaking his head no. Yeah, there's a way that you can simulate it without doing that, but that's no, that's dumb. Anytime you have a game where it's one-on-one -on -one or 2v2 and there's a way to like, we can all cooperate against the game. I'm sorry, that's, that's the subpar version of a game. So one of the downsides that people list is, well, somebody's got to play the bad guys here that's trying to, you know what? I love being the bad guy, being that conniving little ship, you know, like w pinching the edge of my mustache, no matter what the game, if there's an opportunity to be the forces of evil, like when we played War of the Ring, it's like, well, I'm obviously I'm going to be Sauron. <laughs> I don't know why. I love being the mean, the, the bad so people. Are, oh, I, you know, it's hard to play as that role. And, you know, when you consider what you're doing, it's like, no, we're playing a board game. I'm going to buy into this role and I'm going to be conniving and i'm gonna be rude and i'm gonna really buy into it and then have some fun with it so when we're done we put it in a box and we had a good time and we learned something and i'm not a bad guy for simulating that role just getting that out there hopefully this ends up being a great thing and this game gets into the hands of more gamers and more people get to experience it and learn from it certainly well, hope so unfortunately for facebook i've already backed it <laughs> boom <laughs> Ryan, you got a couple things on here. So I'm going to bring the adventurers with me, and we're going to jump into the way back machine and go back to the distant time of 11 months ago. Woo! Kat and I had a side quest, and, and we spoke with the designers Steve Cassell and Matt Cousineau for their game Kyperium. Mm -hmm. And if you, heard, if you haven't listened to that episode, check it out. It's episode number 86. Doing now, Kyperium your homework. Is, I like it. I try to, man. I got to get this. <laughs> <laughs> so Kyperium is a wonderful two-player-only tableau-building worker placement game where the cards you play become worker placement spots for your opponent. And you want to use the synergies of the colors and the corners of your cards that you made to gain discovery points so you can go up the discovery track quickly. And this is a race game to become the first player to complete that track and win the game. The reason I bring it up is because before 
we had to play this on Tabletop Simulator, and we had a prototype one that we played at one of the Pittsburgh meetups. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. That was at uh, Four Horsemen. Excellent yeah. meetup that one was. That was a fun time. However, we don't have to do that anymore, because I'm happy to say that backers are now getting their copies, including the one that I got a few days ago. And I have to say, Matt and Steve, well done. The quality is great. I'm excited to table this and show it to all my friends. It's one of the best two-player games I've played still. I think I'll have to bring my copy over when I come to you next. Great seeing, what was it, Matt at PAX Unplugged? Yeah, it was his last day. We're all uh, when we were playing Darwin's Journey. That was Matt. That was uh, Kuzo. Well, yeah. you were there with us, right? Uh, you know, did he say hi? To- okay, so you saw Matt too. Yep. We all got to see Matt. He exists. He's real. Oh, yeah. He's not just on the computer. <laughs> yeah, that was cool. That was cool that he made it a point to stop over and say hi. Uh, he was messaging me. He was blowing me up while we we're playing Darwin's Journey. He's like, "Where you at, man?" I was like, "Over here, row E, <laughs> section C." And he made it a point to stop by before heading back up to Canada. That was awesome. Yes. It was. Yes. What else you got, Ryan? So, I'm going to go ahead and say that it is finally done, guys. So, Pat and I have played our 100th game of Ark Nova on BGA a few days ago. Clap track. Yep. It was a real fun battle, but we're done. We are done, at least for now. Do you have Um, the stats? You probably won, I'm going to guess you won 62 to my 38. Funny thing about the stats, I have them written right here. Okay, I'm I'm very curious. I feel like by the end we'd go 50-50, but in the early games, in the first 30, you probably took 24 of them, and it, I think it skews it a bit. So here's what I have written down. Let's hear it. Near the beginning, I was reigning supreme with wins after wins, but near the end, Pat got into the groove and won four straight games, six straight games in a row, closing Boom. that gap. All in all... I won 57 of them while Pat won 43. So that's not a wow. huge gap. That's, okay. that's really only a difference of seven games if you think about it. Right. Uh, we got so good at the game. Well, I mean, <laughs> in, we're, still in our not, world. We're, we're still not the greatest, but we feel like we've gotten better. <laughs> but no, we got so good at the game that by the time someone like takes the first sponsorship card, we already had the idea if we're going to win or lose. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. was we usually could, we within could the first score. Like, the one oh, game yeah. I was like, man, I'll be surprised if I break 60. And I finished at like 65 or something. I was like, sometimes you can just read those tea leaves based on your opening hand, your opening salvo of plays and, and what the opponent does. And uh, you kind of know, which I guess is a little bit of a drawback to Ark Nova. Sometimes you, I, I call it the failure to launch. Sometimes you just have a failure to launch and the other person's smooth sailing. Yep. That happened to me when uh, you kept on doing really well near the last couple of games. But I learned Pat's strategies. He learned mine. He took the cards that I wanted, and I didn't care enough. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's pretty much that. So now the zoo is closed, but if you adventurers have an idea on the next game that Pat and I, and maybe now Scott, since he's going to have more time after his acting gig, maybe there's there's something that you want us all to try for the next 100 games or so. Um, Just let us know. But other than that, Pat, this was fun. I had this a really was good a time great time. Yeah, yeah. I, I've had I've had a blast playing it. Uh, I'm not going to lie. Uh, since you left me out in the cold, and right. I'm now single, I've been playing some games with Zacky Poo and Kurt, uh, my man Kurt, who taught me how to play Sky Team. We've been going back and forth every year, and I probably have five games apiece against each of them. Uh, they're they're both crushing me. <laughs> <Pretty good. laughs> I was sure, right? I was like, man, we're we're totally like. We're honing in on strategy. We're getting good at this. And then I'll just do it like an open game just against a rando. And I'll be like, what is happening here? Why am I always losing? (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, fun game, fun game. That was that was a phenomenal time getting to do that hundred over the last. Jeez, it's been four months anyway. I remember we were at PAX in the hotel, and you're like, "Oh, by the way, I'm totally winning the game that we're at that we're playing right now." It's like, "What are you talking about? It's twenty one to twenty eight. There's no, and you're like, "I I see my hand," and I was like, "Oh, jeez." And yep. sure enough, yeah, you took that one. Uh, again, we we got good enough to do that. You know, that's just how we roll. Closing out the banter, Adventures, I want you to check out Onboard Games, the podcast. Eric runs Onboard, well, Eric and his co-host run Onboard Games, and they're up to over 500 episodes. But the best one, their very best episode is episode 529, because yours truly, just Patrick, got to join him. And, uh, you know, I was uh, chatting with Eric. We talked about some of the the things that we've been playing lately, and we talked about how to pick what games you want to play. So I implore you guys, check out Onboard Games quality podcast and uh, frankly a really cool guy yes please boost patrick's ego yes (laughs) this is all i have leave me be right (laughs) lastly masters of the universe clash for eternia is i keep wanting to say he-man wasn't the cartoon he-man and the masters of the universe yes yes Yes, it was was. so how come the game isn't called he-man and the master how come the game is just called masters of the universe well that was what the comic was called i think Yes, that answers yes. that. The comic was just Masters of the Universe. The the toy line was just Masters of the Universe. Yep. The uh, cartoon was He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Well, Masters of the Universe Clash for Eternia is live. So I figured, what a better way to start off the recent plays. Can I have the floor? It's yours. Yeah. Let's play some He-Man music. G.I. Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Skeletor and his minions are out to take over Eternia. Guys, Masters, it's a scenario-based skirmish game. It's an all-versus-one type of game. Yes, they have ways you can play against an AI, but like I said earlier, that's bullcrap. I don't like playing games that way. I like all-versus-one whenever a game has that opportunity. So when you set this one up, you got four heroes going up against the controller, who is named that because they control the bad guys, and apparently Simon couldn't come up with a good name for that role. The heroes, they each get a plastic dashboard, which is going to house their main character card and their power-up cubes, while the controller is going to get three bad guy characters and a group of minions. Now, this is the same regardless of whether there's four heroes, three, or even just a single hero, but they scale it. They balance it with a power system. It actually works out pretty well. The controller also gets some skill cards they're going to be able to unlock as they gain power throughout the game, and I'll get there. The scenario that you play, it's going to show how to set up the board, lays out the terms for victory as well. And it's kind of cool. The battlefield's got like terrain tiles and stuff that can give some variations for different spaces on the board. Nothing that we haven't seen before. You just set the cards off to the side and it says, well, if you're in the forest area, do X. Sometimes the scenario will let you interact with various things on the board. Now, on the side of this board, it shows the round initiative, eight slots for cards, and it shows health trackers, just like a one through 12, and everybody puts their little token. So you can see everybody's health at a glance. I like that. Gameplay, you got two phases, the order phase and the activation phase. The order phase is where the players and the controller are each going to take turns placing cards on this initiative track face down so that you don't know the sequence that the opponent, uh, that your opponent, whether you're the controller or the hero, is going to activate. And so, you know, Ryan, you and I are the good guys and we're controlling, say, four characters. Scott, you're the big bad, you're the controller. So, All right. Ryan, we'll take our, our four cards and you'll take many faces and you'll put it face down in the first okay. slot. Scott, Done. you'll take one of your minions and you'll put it in the second. Well, I'm sorry. Scott, you get to go first. You're the controller. So you'll put yours face down. And then we put Manny faces in slot two. Scott puts a second one down. And then we take Tila and put her in that third slot, etc. Until you fill up the initiative track. 
Then we get to the activation phase, which is where you're going to flip the cards one at a time. So we'll flip that first one, and that's where Scott put uh, Beast Man, so he gets to activate that character. Then after that, it's uh, on to Manny Faces, who Ryan will then get to play with and activate, etc. So it's it's not random, but you kind of have this little guessing game of, oh, who do I want to act first? I want this one to act first, but if Scott moves Skeletor before we get to move Tila, she's going to be up shit creek without a paddle, and we don't want that. So we're in this activation phase. Depending on when you activate, you might gain some power, which is basically cubes that you put on your player board next to one of your skills, potentially unlocking an ability. The character then gets to perform up to two actions, and it can be the same one twice. Almost always, it's some combination of moving or attacking. But it can be interacting with terrain, interacting with another character, depending on the scenario, of course. Uh, and you also can use a skill that you've unlocked, which, I mean, that's where some of the variety from what the players get to do matters. Who's the little, uh, who's the little wizard guy? Is it Orko? That is Orko. That's Orko. Okay, so Orko has magic spells that he can do once you have some power. Otherwise, it's just a basic ranged attack. When you get to the end of that initiative track and everyone has activated, the cards are returned to the players, who then get to set up for a new initiative for the next round. So what's the hook? All right, it sounds like a lot of, okay, we're walking around and we're rolling dice, just beating the crap out of each other. First of all, the scenarios. You know, what you're doing in, in the game is going to depend on what the scenario is. Sometimes it's like, get to this spot and take it over there. You know, get the sword, get it over to here. Sometimes it's kill X number of baddies, that sort of thing. But the power that you're assigning to your skills... When the heroes spend their power, it goes to the controller, all right? Ooh. So, you're getting these little power cubes that'll get, like, I have a skill card that says, you know what, I can spend a power off of this, and it'll give me a plus two to my attack. Or I can spend two power, and I can hurl a big rock, because I'm He-Man, I'm strong, right? Hurl a big rock and do four damage, and it's a ranged attack. The problem is, I've got to give two of my cubes to the controller. And the controller gets to slot it on their board to say, okay, now here's what I get to power up. Most scenarios are also going to incorporate an escalation track, which has a threshold at which players can unlock new powerful abilities, flip a card over, and suddenly you got Battle Cat, right? Not very complex. Uh, honestly, this game's pretty easy to play, and I think that's one of the things that is going for it, because that ease of play, it doesn't mean that it lacks some depth, particularly because of that power system. Uh, but make no mistake, a lot of the game is going to be moving around, rolling dice, and having a good old slobber knocker on the board. The, the whole system just sounds different than any other system I've heard of. I don't know. I don't know how it's going to play. I mean, like, I, I'm just listening to you and trying to visualize everything. And so, and it looks like Scott is too. He's really trying to visualize things, I can tell. <laughs> Scott's no. got his head in his hand. No. Uh-oh, what's Uh-oh, we said something that was just not right for uh, for the, the mythos, the, the lore of Masters of the Universe. Go ahead, No, King. that's the problem. I know too much about it and I'm ashamed. <laughs> oh, don't- that's what that is. <laughs> <laughs> Don't I'm you worry, I got messed up between Manny Faces and Triclops. Good lord, what's wrong with me? Uh, this sounds like a, this sounds like something Scott shouldn't play or else he's going to get upset if there's one thing. Oh. <laughs> you know what, King? I got a – someone was selling it secondhand, so I have the all-in Kickstarter. I got the 3D terrain. I got the Grayskull. It's, it's got this big, dumb Castle Grayskull thing. Hey, hey oh, it's got the oh, neopre- oh, you don't use that dumb word with Castle Grayskull. Okay, fair enough. It's got this really sweet Castle Grayskull plastic <laughs> thing that you can set up for your board game. I think once it's all set up on the table, because as I'm playing it, you know, I'm soloing it and I'm just playing with a buddy. We, we just used the only upgrade that I used was the neoprene mat, which is like, well, okay, who cares? It's basically the same thing as the game board. I'm thinking maybe when we do the meetup in January, the, the 28th, we're going to have our, our meetup in Latrobe. I think 
that'd be a really good one. Like, I know the game well enough that I can be the controller. And I can just have four people. Like, if you want to play with me, and then we'll get three other people. And we'll be like, all right, we're doing this. And that's where we'll set up the plastic terrain. We'll okay. set up the plastic castle Grayskull. And we'll just we'll just go crazy with it. I, I, I like it. I like it. So, Adventures, you got to be asking yourself, should I back it? It's live now. First of all, there's over 75 videos on this game on BGG, uh, which is a little bit skewed because over half of them are previews for the Kickstarter. So, you know, the one that they had two years ago plus this one. So skip those because they're all kind of your standard, you know, bye, bye, bye. It's, you know, there are many commercials, but there are some great reviews on there. So do check on BGG. My advice, I don't dislike this game, but I'm not about to like shell out hundreds of dollars to get the all in. Never mind that I already have. I got a deal on it, though. If I was back in on Kickstarter, would I go all in? Probably not, but He-Man was never my jam, right? I was a Ninja Turtle kid. You replace the plastic gray skull with a Technodrome. You replace Battle Cat with a Turtle Blimp. Yeah, I'd be backing that, no doubt, and whatever it costs, especially with, like, the clever initiative system, the power system that we see in this He-Man game. I suppose if Masters of the Universe gives you that nostalgic, tingly sensation in your nether regions, and you like a good dice-chucking thematic romp, then yes, a hundred times over, you are going to love this game. On the other hand, if you're ho-hum on He-Man, then Clash for Attorney is probably not going to wow you. It's going to feel like, okay, I move and I roll dice, and I move and I roll dice. Yeah, the whole thing with using the power and passing it to the controller, that really immediately took me back to the old Lord of the Rings card game from Decipher. They had that mm-hmm. where you could start off, you get your hand of cards with, oh my God, I got Boromir and Gandalf and two hobbits and Sting in my hand. This is going to be a great first turn. Boom, play, play, play. And then you realize that, yeah, that just costs you like 15 power that you're now giving to the enemy. So, so you're it's just like this like, tug of war. Yeah. So you're really looking at it. I really want to do this, but. I don't want them to get all that power that I'm going to be giving over to them. So you really have to plan carefully your strategy as to what's going to work. So I, I really dig that. Yeah, and let's put it this way. If, if you don't back it for yourself, you know, do it for Dolph Lundgren. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but don't do it for that weird little guy with that musical key. That was just wrong. Guys, I'm not going <laughs> to lie. You lost me. Oh, Dolph Lundgren played uh, He-Man in Masters of the Universe movie in 1987. Was it any good? You don't want to say no, but I will. <laughs> okay. Thank you. You know, the best part about He-Man, oh, I'm sorry, should I say Masters of the Universe, is the Skeletor memes that came out. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. I love them. Like, I-, I learned the best one just a few days ago, in fact. <laughs> and it goes like this. <clears throat> Let's see if I can do it in my best Skeletor voice. <clears throat> okay. Remember, you can't have advertisements without putting semen between the tits. Until we meet again. Now, how am I supposed to put that on, on in an episode? I gotta cut that. <laughs> then cut that. <laughs> I just want this cotton all over. That's great. I describe this as a family show. Heck, we put little like uh, uh, placard things, like card holders. I got, let, let's cut recover. Hang on. <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. We lost okay. the king. We put little. We put these little signs like in some of the local shops uh, around Pittsburgh, and it's got a little card holder with our business card. So, and it's got the QR code. So, uh, I took it to one of the places in uh, Little Washington where I grew up. And the owner at the store, he's like, "Is it a family show? Like, he's very family oriented, and you yep. know, things got to be clean." He's like. You know, do you guys use language? Do you like, do you bash board games? Like, this is a fun, fun loving cut. And I was like, yeah. He's like, okay, yeah, set him up. <laughs> now he's <laughs> going to hear that. 
<laughs> don't, don't even put it in then. I, I can do another one. <clears throat> I'm going to do one more. Here we go. Just for you. <clears throat> Remember, if a serial killer is coming after you, you're both running for your lives. Until we meet again. <laughs> wow. <laughs> At Board Gamers Anonymous, we provide help to those with board game problems that are affecting their lives. Our communal program helps gamers reach out to each other to understand that they are not alone. Hi, my name is Bridget. Hi, Hi Bridget. Bridget. It started with a deck of magic cards. Just 60 sleeves. I'll be fine, I thought. Then I bought Dominion. Then four expansions. Before I even knew what was happening, I had a bag of extra sleeves. Then a box of them. The problem worsened. It just had to sleeve. Single sleeves. Double sleeves. The toilet paper. Car keys. Even my lunch. All sleeved. Things came to a head last month. I, I couldn't help myself. I sleeved my children. We at Board Gamers Anonymous understand these gamer problems, and we help uncover the root cause of the issues so that you can enjoy a healthy, addiction-free hobby. Hi, Gary. I suppose it all started with watching unboxing videos. Seeing those components kept mold-free by the silicone gel packet inside, as my collection grew... I never threw out a single packet. I became obsessed. I started using the silica gel packets for household cleaning. I used to salt the sidewalks, but things grew out of control. Last month, I just couldn't help myself. I ate a silica packet. It started as one packet a day, but now I'm up to seven. These silica packets are taking control of my life. In this fight, you're not alone, and recovery is just a phone call away. Board Gamers Anonymous. Support and recovery for those with board game hobby problems. Call today. Guys, let's go from one retro 80s throwback cartoon to another. King, you got your hands on that USS Flag expansion, didn't you? Oh, I most certainly did. And Oh, he's going to hold it up. Look at that. It's got like a USS Flag. That's yes, the everyone, Look, look, everyone. Look. Yes, we do good radio here. One more time uh, for the yes. listeners. It's G.I. Joe deck building game. I got to jump in on it. This came in big box with it, and there's like 30 cards in it. Like, mm-hmm. what? what is wrong with this? And then you have the punch out, uh, build your U.S. flag, and oh, I love it. You got a couple little sky strikers to put on it. They do oh, have nothing, out. but they look cool. Is that cardboard or plastic? Cardboard. You just like pop them out and put it together. Yep. That's cool. But, uh, but yeah, you got them on there, and it looks great. And you have little um, cards to put on to different areas of the flag that give you different bonuses whenever you're playing. But the joy of this is whenever you play it as a campaign. Because oh. there are six envelopes in here, and those envelopes have all sorts of goodies and baddies in it. So just like your regular deck building game, a Dominion, Ascension, DC deck building game, uh, whatever you're playing, you have a hand of cards. Everyone starts off with the same hand of cards. Mm-hmm. But then you have a market. You lay them out. They could be different uh, Joes that you can uh, recruit, different vehicles, different gear that you can have, all these different things to make up your own team while you're playing. While you're doing that, you are also going to be going through different chapters of a story. 
So Cobra could be going and attacking a beachfront property or something of some multimillionaire. Well, you got to stop him. Well, you need to go through there, and whenever you flip over a card, you see, well, I need to have a certain number of points to uh, be able to attack in tech. Maybe I need tech. Maybe I need recon. And mm-hmm. each one of the Joes have different abilities they have at the bottom of their cards. So whatever number is on that, if it matches up with what you need to take on the chapter of the game you're playing, well, you get that many dice. You want to roll hits in order to beat it. You have a certain number of hits you need to do. What makes this interesting is you have a big book of a campaign, and you open it up in chapter one. Well, you need to get these certain cards out here. You need to set things up this way, and you're off doing this great story through this whole six different chapters. It's kind of interesting because they have a lot of expansions for this, but it shines with just the base core game and this. You could throw in Transformers and different things like that that are in it with the other expansions, but it really kind of muddies the waters of everything it's doing, and it gets just too busy with everything. You don't get the streamlined feel of everything that you want to play. But yeah, I've gone through two of the chapters so far. I've failed horribly. (laughs) Um, I I mean, I I never thought that Cobra was that efficient, but evidently they were. It's a great game. It's a lot of fun, and it's especially great if you're a G.I. Joe fan. You get, uh, well, what's his name? Keelhaul. The guy that came with the U.S. flag toy. Yes. You have Shipwreck. And you have Polly that comes along with them. You have a whole series of different pets. So you have Junkyard. I think Junkyard is his dog. Uh, he's uh, nerding out. Okay. Yeah. yeah I, I can't remember here off the top of my head. You've got Freedom, which was, uh, no, Spirit, which was the one Joe's eagle. So you got all sorts of different things here with the different animals that just, if you're a Joe fan, you have a lot of fun with. And that's right. well, Joe, the deck building game, raise the flag. I got some questions. You All said right. this comes in a bigger box, and I see that you have these assembled little plane things going yes. on. You said they're decorative. They don't serve a function, or at least not yet, not through two chapters. Right. Okay. The big box, you held it up, and it looks like the, the carrier, right? And you were talking about you can put cards on it. In some way, you interact with the carrier that is the box? Well, there are little upgrades that you can put in here. Mm-hmm. That will give you different things where it will be like normally whenever you have vehicles, you have a vehicle and it'll go in the hangar. Whenever you use it, it goes away. Mm-hmm. Well, now there will be have things here where if the vehicle comes up, well, you have a, let me see here, a steam catapult. Well, that means you can get plus one on your capacity on whatever vehicle you're using. Or you could swipe it, swipe it over and get an electromag catapult. And any player may assign Joes to a side mission, even if they're not in it. So it gives a chance for you to adapt for what you want to play and how you want to play the game. Sounds like it gives you a little bit more agency as yes. far as like what you're able to assemble whenever you take on a mission. Exactly. 20 millimeter cannon or 76 millimeter anti-ship gun. Depending on what you want to do, it'll help you get different things whenever you roll the dice for hits. It's a lot of fun. It gives you a lot, yeah, like you said, a lot more agency in how you want to prepare for the battles. Now, are you buying those cards from the market? Like, are are they shuffled into the market deck, or are they like a sideboard? Okay, so you may or may not see them in a game. If you do see one. The cards on the ship, no, those go out right away. You select what they are, and then you can select what you want to do with them each game. 
you may set it up thinking, oh, this is perfect. But then whenever it comes along and you start flipping over the difficulties and the different chapters, and you're realizing, I, yeah, I, I just did really horrible. And if this is the real world, there went $15 billion in uh, military <laughs> intelligence. <laughs> so, Scott, uh, about how many episodes in, are in this campaign? I know you're planning on finishing this, but like, how long does this campaign look to be? Do you know? It doesn't look like it's going to be that long. There's a lot of stories, so you have different things where you're flipping through, so it kind of feels like a choose-your-own-adventure type of game. So if you win, you read this section. If you lose, you read this section. Oh, so it's a branching story. Yes, so you've got a lot of different things to do with that. There's six envelopes with all sorts of information, new cards, new complications to add into the game that you're playing. I don't think it's going to be an overly long one. Unfortunately, right now with my rehearsal schedule and work things picking up for me, I don't have as much time to play games. So this is kind of taking a side place here on the corner of my table until I really get the time to just sit down. Oh, I don't know. Maybe some Saturday. Just knock it out all in one day. All right. Well, I mean, good luck with the rest of the campaign. I'm hoping the Joes reign supreme. Go Joes. I, I, um, yeah, 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 definitely. You said no. that so, so pleasantly. Oh, yes, Jojo's. Jo- yes, jo- yes, indeed. Gojo's. Yeah. But it's <laughs> called it's Yo Jo. Yo Jo. So I, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> I don't know how bad you guys got it, but the weather here actually caused us to have a state of emergency in New Jersey. So everyone was told to stay off the streets this past weekend, and I was planning on hanging out with friends, doing fun things with my son, but nope. Mother Nature had different plans. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was quite bored on Saturday. I watched a few more episodes of One Piece. I finished the Skypea arc. Yeah. Ooh, and then it was playoff ar- football all weekend. You can't be bored. <laughs> <laughs> and then looked around and there it was. It caught me in the corner of my eye. It's a game. Oh. Or should I say it was an expansion that has been sealed in its box on my shelf for about Around four years. Oh, shelf of shame. Hello. Definitely. It's just hard to get a campaign going. And then you have to maintain that game with the same people just to get it done, right? Right. I I never finished a full campaign as Pandemic Legacy 1. I mean, we got to like May and that was it. Anyway, uh, there it was, staring at me like it had been for all these years. And I kept leaving it there because the game says it's best at four players and not at all great at two. But... (laughs) I threw that nonsensical thought aside and I said, I'll never get played unless I stop whining and worrying and just play the damn thing. So within one minute of seeing it and thinking that, I was already done removing the shrink, opening the box, coming through the rulebook for Scythe, the Rise of Fenris. Yeah. So I know some of you out there are listening may still want to play this and haven't, so I won't be giving any spoilers away or anything, so don't worry about that, okay? This is a spoiler-free run-through of what happened as far as this campaign is concerned. Okay, so you're probably wondering how I handled knowing what values the combat cards were for both factions or how I handled decisions that involve something like a vote in the campaign. So you played I this, just to clarify, you played this two-handed. You yes, controlled two different players by yourself on a snow day. Snowed yeah. in. Okay, gotcha. I did. I've been learning games using that old two-handed solo method for a long time, and I think Mm -hmm. by now I've trained my brain enough into shutting off one player's information and strategies while I'm playing as the other as a means to learn the game, especially when I'm trying to do different strategies for each of them. So I didn't have any difficulties with it, and it only caused an issue once in this campaign, but I easily resolved it. But yeah, it just turned out just fine. So I set up the game. 
picked the two factions that I wanted to start this thing out with, which were the Rusviet Union and the Crimean Kanate. I think that's how you pronounce it. And ran the first episode of the campaign, finished that, and since it went by quickly, I jumped right into the second one. And then I finished that one, and I thought to myself, ooh, I'm in it now. So I played the <laughs> third episode, I had dinner, did the fourth episode, and pretty soon it was like 10 at night. And I was really engulfed in the thing, but I was getting really tired, so I set up episode five, and then went to bed. Guys, I woke up at 7 in the morning, and the first thing that I did was fix myself a coffee, got myself a bowl of Cheerios, and then I just finished up the entire rest of the four episodes of that campaign. Oh, nice. Finished it <laughs> at like 3 in the afternoon. So what you're looking at is a little over 24 hours I completed all eight episodes of Rise of Fenris. I got to say, this campaign was very interesting. I enjoyed many things about it. Story, the challenges, the surprises, the new factions you get. Wait till you see the mechs for one of them. I'm not giving anything away. Just saying, wait till you see one of the mechs for one of them. It's crazy. Mm-mm. I do have to say, though, there's a lot of unforgiving things in this campaign. And without too much giving too much away, I'll say that there are certain episode missions you can do that just make the episode really fast or just not that inspiring or fulfilling. There was an episode finish where one of the factions had three stars and the other one that caused the episode to finish only had one. No There's geez. also situations where you get like game-changing bonuses if you're the winner of that episode, and that's a huge detriment to all the other factions for the entirety of the rest of the campaign. I'm not talking about like small bonuses. I'm talking substantial ones, and I, I'm, I'm still not trying to give anything away, but I would feel like if this was a four-player game, not just this two-player game where I'm playing it alone, there would be a lot of gripe against the one player that got that big substantial bonus. That being said, I did still have a whole lot of fun with it. I understand why it won Expansion of the Year in 2018, and that was The Rise of Fenris. Have you guys played Scythe at all? Mm. A bunch. That was one of the first ones when Scott and I were like, yeah, let's do a podcast. Scott came over to the house, and we had, I want to say it was like a five-player game. It was a massive game of Scythe. It was a beast. You know what? I like it every time I play. I went to Jimmy's house. We played it over there. He he had this giant 3D-printed factory in the middle of the board. (laughs) His friend's like, that was their jam. I don't know. I I love Scythe every time I play it. It's just never the game that I'm suggesting. And part of that is because I'm a new, I'm a cult of the new. I want to play the new thing. What's next? What's next? What's next? And a lot of that stems from Scythe has a great app and I've played on the app a billion times. So it's kind of run its course. I had Fenris and much like you, I was like holding out for that right time, that right group and out comes, uh, what was it? Uh, Clank Legacy. And we started that. And then out comes tickets. It's, it, there's, oh, that there was, was, was always something. Then. There was always something that took the place of doing Rise of Fenris. And I eventually just sold my copy still while in shrink. Well, I'm sorry that you did that. You were actually missing out on something pretty great. Okay. Uh, funny thing you said about the 3D printed factory that I have that too. There's two versions of it too, believe it or not. There's like oh, a really? small, there's a small 3D printed factory and there's one that takes up the entire hex of the large board. And that's the one that I have. It has like you three tiers on it. So you can put like three figures on it. It's pretty great. Oh, for God's sake. <laughs> no, probably, I'm looking at this thing. I probably thing. put it's like, about $300 worth of upgrades in my side game. I'm guessing that's about where they're at. I said to Jimmy, no, it wasn't Jimmy. It belonged to one of his friends. I was like, wait a minute. How much did you guys spend on this thing? They're like, it was $45. I was like, holy, <laughs> come on now. <laughs>
Guys, it's time for the top 100 <laughs> update. We're going to talk prime movers. Too many bones is up two spots to 35. Heat, pedal to the metals up four spots to 47. Cthulhu, death may die up two spots to 66. And oath sworn into the deep wood is up four to number 91. Falling stars, games that have lost at least two spots. The crew, the quest for planet nine, down two to number 68. Top 100 debuts. One that we actually, uh, this is doing a vanishing act and a reappearing act. It's Tricarian Legends of illusion <laughs> it's back into the top 100 it looks like raiders of the north sea is out for now new highest peaks these games are higher than they've ever been too many bones at 35 heat pedal the metal at 47 cthulhu death may die at 66 obsession is up to number 71 yes. Oath sworn into the deep wood at 91 and tricarian at 99 happy birthdays <laughs> All right, guys, Quacks of Quedlinburg, four years. Wow. Gaia Project has been on there for six years. Arkham Horror, the card game, seven years. Five Tribes, nine years. Now we're getting big. Terra Mystica, 11 years in the top 100. Wow. Eclipse, original Eclipse, is still in the top 100, and it sits at 12 years. Power Grid, any guesses? I want to say 16 years. I was going to say 15. 20. Whoa! It's a long time to be in the top 100. Yeah. That's one I have yet to play, too, but I've heard, listened to, to your episode about it. I want to say, what what episode was that? Probably, like, like episode seven? five or six? Yeah, that's going. <laughs> that's back in the beginning. It should have been, you know, back then we didn't have the concept down for, like, oh, we'll do level back, and that's when we'll talk about an old uh, an old game. So we did Power Grid, and it was just a regular episode. <laughs> we, we're still trying to figure out this whole, like, structure and theme. Yeah. I don't know. We, we throw in 8-bit music, so well, let's do that right now. Set in a world where mystical beings roam and where you are a tamer, trying to bring these beings under your wing to help you with the ultimate goal, taming the most noble and valuable beings, the dragons. The Veil of Eternity is a 2-4 player drafting and hand management game designed by Eric Hong, featuring the illustrations of many artists, and published in 2023 by Mandu Games. In the Veil of Eternity, players will be playing up to 10 rounds, with each round consisting of three main phases, the Hunting Phase, Actions Phase, and Resolution. Players will proceed through these phases until at least one of two endgame triggers occur, one of which is a player obtaining 60 points, and the other is if it's the end of the 10th round. So how do you play? Well, in the Hunting Phase, cards are drafted. Two cards per player are dealt, and the player will bid on cards that they want with their claim markers. First going clockwise, starting with the first player, and then like a snake draft, it'll go counterclockwise, starting with the last player, until all players have claimed two cards. Now the actions phase, where things really start happening. A player can either sell a card they have a claim marker on, getting stones of different values to use later, or they can tame the card by just putting it in their hand. Also, they could summon a card from their hand by paying the cost in stones that at least meet the value at the top left of the card then put it in front of them, but they can only have as many cards in their area based on the round everyone's in. So for example, if it's the fourth round, you can only have four cards in your area. Well, if you need room, you could do the last action, which is removing a card by paying stones that at least meet a value that is greater than or equal to the current round number, and then getting rid of any card you want. So now why do I keep on saying stones that at least meet the value of something? Well, that's because there are three different valued stones, one, three, and six. And when you get these stones, you have to check and make sure that you don't have more than four stones total. If you do, you have to get rid of some so that you're left with four, regardless of the value. 
So I could have all one value stones, or I could have two three value stones and two six value stones, etc. And when you pay for something, you don't get changed, so you might have to overpay in this game. Alright, after all players have taken as many actions as they want to on their turn, we go to Resolution. Some cards will have hourglass or active icons on them, and players will resolve all of these effects, and then the round is done. Pass the first player marker clockwise, and then continue to the next round, except if one of those endgame triggers occurred. If one of them has, then whoever has the most points here wins. So you may be thinking, that's it? This game seems pretty simple, but is it really? If it's too simple, does that mean I won't enjoy this game? Well, stick around, because the Level Up Board Game Podcast crew will be telling you what they think as they do the 8-bit breakdown of The Veil of Eternity. Enter a fantastical world of monsters, spirits, and gods. As a tamer, you'll hunt and tame a variety of creatures with the ultimate goal of capturing the powerful and noble dragons. Well, Ryan, thank you for the walkthrough of today's review game, The Veil... Is it The Veil of Eternity? It is The Veil of Eternity, and for show, I'm happy to help. (laughs) (laughs) Don't don't say for show. (laughs) Ever. Adventures, as you know, we like to look at games through eight bits, eight different facets to determine whether or not we liked it. We start with the art and components. We finish with was it fun and who's it for? How about we do a uh, how about we do a king, then Ryan, then me for each of these? Okay, all right, that sounds good. King, you got the floor then for bit number one, the art and components. All right. So art and components. Well, the components are a little difficult since we played it on BGA because we're all in different parts of this state and or close by states. But we got a chance to play it and the artwork is very fun. I love the color scheme that they used. It's a lot of pastels, a lot of light colors like that. Some of the fire creatures look menacing. But still, the, mm. the color palette just makes you feel like, oh, they're just happy. Just They're just misunderstood. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I do like what they did with the art with it. It does draw you in to take a look at it. If you walk past and look at it, yeah, it's a bunch of cards out there. But still, the color palette, there's just something about it for me personally that draws me into it. I want to know more about what's going on with that. So that's my thoughts on that. Next. Okay. Well. My thoughts are you have two pentagons as main boards in the middle of this table. Mm -hmm. One of them is this bright, colorful, rainbow-like, beautiful centerpiece with a dragon standee proudly placed in the center, sitting on top of a sundial. It looks magnificent. And then the other one, you have a dud for a score tracker. (laughs) It's it's a really off-putting, rounded scoring track in like a snake form where you're going like, almost all the way around this circle and then you come back the other way and then the other way and then again and again and it's like you set up your score tracker inside of a circle why not just have it spiral all the way around in one direction have it go around the circle yeah Yeah, right i mean that's a minor gripe but the ocd in me is making my eyes twitch when i look at it (laughs) the art on the cards are fabulous though it's kind of cartoony but not in a childish way the background of each of these cards really gets it in your head that it's an earth fire uh, earth card or a fire card and right. on that note, Scott, I agree with you. And I think the fire cards, in my opinion, they look the best. They just, they look amazing, in my opinion. 
mm-hmm. that's what I think about the art and components. How about you, Pat? Uh, you guys pretty much covered it. The art's uh, it's not too simple, not too serious. It's kind of cartoony, sure. Uh, you get cardboard tokens to represent the three, domi- the three denominations of stones, which are like the currency in the game. I like that they included that pentagonal shape around which the cards are placed for drafting. Although I think in like for practicality's sake, I know the BGA implementation is phenomenal because all the cards are always facing the right direction for you. Like if you're playing around the table, some of them are going to be upside mm-hmm. down and you really got to know what the cards do. And there are 70 different ones. So it's going to take a while before you can just look at a card and know what it does. But decent art and components. And we'll get to the value of this game. Guys, you can. You can get this thing for twenty five bucks. That's that's really good. I think yes, right. Yes, we're not yes. expecting miniatures on the board for the amount of game that's going on in this. Twenty five bucks feels like a steal. I digress. Let's get to the theme and immersion, King. Let's go to bit number three. <laughs> that oh, it's like that. Fair enough. No. All right, Ryan. Uh, what really, do you got? Oh. There isn't much theme and immersion here. I don't feel like I'm a god gathering up different warriors to face battle or anything like that at all you're just trying to get cards that will do things so you can win um that's that's all i really see on that i i don't get much out of it so according to the game itself you are taming creatures to help you with the ultimate goal of getting the powerful and noble dragons but when you're playing the game you are selling creatures for stones and using the stones to tame other creatures Actually, not even tame them. To tame them, you summon. Just, you just put them in your hand. But you're using the stones to summon the creatures, and they do some mystifying things, like get you points for having a variety of creature types. I don't get it. I don't get. I don't get the immersion or the theme in this one at all. Uh, whether someone likes the game or not, I don't think they'll like it because of the immersion or theme, of which there is really not any. At least that's not not based on what's expected on the synopsis that I just gave. Mm -hmm. Granted, yes, they're mythical creatures and you're gathering them, but nowhere in the game was I imagining how I tamed these creatures because there wasn't anything that tied the actions with the theme together. So this is a miss for me. How about you, Pat? Okay, let's try and make the glass half full. The the one thing that they have going for... Yes, you guys are both right. Nobody's buying this game because the theme sucked them in, right? And as you're playing, you're not going to have that happen either. But you can get immersed into the gameplay. The, the draft portion, the combos, the engines that you can build. It's a game where every time new cards line up to pick from, your brain, like, instantly, like, ooh, you know what I mean? You get excited. I want to see them. I want to see what they do. I want to see their picture. I want to I get a look at this critter. And each of the colors do something different. Like, the, the fire guys, the red, it wants to be quick. They want to do cheap, quick points here and there. You know, like, uh, two points here, two points there. We're going to work off the cheap stone. Green wants to find ways to cheat big stuff into play or to cash in on things. Blue plays an economic game. I want to turn my little stones into into three power stones and turn those into sixes, that sort of thing. Pink, pink wants to get combos together. I'm going to play this, which is going to bounce it back. Or every time I play something, I get a point. Things of that nature. And then purple, of course, the dragons do the big swingy things. Sometimes it's just, uh, not as swingy. It's kill something. But they tend to be the big high cost cards that you play. So there's a little bit of tie-in of like, okay, each of the different colors, each faction has its own sort of sub-theme as far as what they do strategically. The actual world of the game, no, nobody's going to be like, oh, I want to play this because of that, right? Complexity, bit number three. Really looking at the grand scheme of things, it's not a complex game. You go through, you choose a card. The player next to you chooses a card. The player next to you chooses a card. If you're playing a three-player game, 
That person chooses a card again and comes back around, and the first player chooses the card at the last one that's left. Okay, that's a big part of complexity. Then you figure out what are you going to put in your hand and what are you going to sell for coins in order to summon the the, uh, the beasts. So, once again, there's not much to that there at all. The complexity really gets into something that I'm going to talk about more on the meat of the game, just on the basic of what you're looking to do. It's not too complex, really, in, in the grand scheme of things. I think that like when we met up on BGA for me to teach you guys, Patrick, you had said that you had glanced at the rule book and pretty much knew how to play right before I, we got on. So my teach was more for Scott, who hadn't seen anything. And I, I started the teach on the hour, and we were off to the races and ready to begin and playing five minutes later. Yes. Maybe there was one question, but I don't think it was like a question of how the game works. I think it was more of a clarification on a ruling for the recover keyword. Either way, in this game, you're doing three phases. One is placing claim markers. One is doing easy-to-understand actions. And the last one is activating any cards in play that you have an hourglass symbol on. That's pretty much the complexity of the game. Not much. Simple game. That's about it. Nothing to add. So let's get right to the rulebook and learning curve. Ryan, you're the rulebook guy. So I mentioned this when we recorded the episode for The White Castle, which would have been a review game, but... Yeah, that was the the lost episode. Yep. (laughs) But the Veil of Eternity has the same review for their rulebook to me that the White Castle would have had as well. And that's that I want all rulebooks to be like this. Ooh. The rulebook was coherent. It displayed the rules for everything in the order that you would do them in the actual game. It shows mm-hmm. detailed, colorful pictures for examples of every action that they're referring to. They have an appendix at the end with any other questions that there may be, so you never really have to ask a question. It's already there. It's beautifully organized for you to have an easy time looking up whatever you need. And I learned this game just from reading the rulebook once, and that's it. I didn't have to look back at it. Uh, except for to comment things on this episode specifically that we're doing. Either way, mm-hmm. well done, whoever wrote and laid out that rule book. Bravo <laughs> to you, I think. <laughs> well, that'll take us right then to the learning curve. Scott, you and I learned this one from Ryan. Ryan, you'd already mentioned. I for me, I I read over the rules really quick, like a quick blurb, and I was like, uh, you know what? I think I think I got this. I think I understand it. It took like a turn, one round of play, to understand how to function within this game. Any any differentiation for you? No, no, really. Like you said, we sat down and we started learning the game. You taught it in probably five minutes, maybe six to really stretch it out there just for <laughs> anything that oh. goes wrong. But yeah, it's very easy to pick up on, but where you get the finesse and the little bit of the keywords on the cards, that's where things get a little bit funky. But learning the basic game, yeah, it's a breeze. Then let's go right to bit number five. King, I'm going to give you the floor right back. Where's the meat in the Veil of Eternity? All right. The meat in Veil of Eternity is synergy. Yes, boys and girls, (laughs) let's say that word together with me. Synergy. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's so many things that go on with these cards that one card plays off the other one that plays off another one. The one game we played, I had a bunch of the fire creatures, and they're all, like, going out and coming back and going out and going back into my hand, just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I just got lucky and happened to get those cards. The playtesting of this, they were brilliant because they worked out so many different synergies with this to make those things come together 
I, just absolutely beautiful thing there. So, yeah, my meat of the game is definitely the synergy between the cards that really makes your engine work and purr. Ryan. Well, first I have a question. Scott, have you read my notes? No. Okay. Because I'm going to read them, all right? Okay. So the, I think the meat in the game is finding the synergy between the cards <laughs> that are represented on... <laughs> and on that note, predicting what cards synergize with what your opponents are doing and maybe hate drafting those cards away from them. Right, Scott? <laughs> uh, it is a yeah, game that has damn it moments. <laughs> yes, it does. All right, don't get me wrong. You're blind as to what is even available or going to be available in that game at all. So you eventually have to just deal with whatever hand you're drafted. But once mm -hmm. you find that combo between two, three, or maybe even four cards, it feels good just activating them over and over. Kind of like an engine building game, which is funny because it's not listed as an engine building game as one of its game mechanics on Board Game Geek. But I think it pretty much is. I had a nice combo of cards where I had four wind creatures laid out in front of me. And one of them made all my wind creatures cost two less to play. I also had the one fire creature that gave me one point for every one point stone that I spent to play anything. Also, I had a wind card in my hand that normally costs four, but with that one creature made it cost two. And its immediate effect when I played it was to get me one point for every wind creature I have in play. And then immediately recover itself back to my hand. That's what recover means. Go back to your hand. Mm -hmm. So I played that with two one point stones. That gave me two points because of that fire creature. And then I got five points for having five wind creatures out. And then that card came back to my hand, and I just spent the rest of the game just claiming the earth or fire creatures, which gave me one point stones, and then I mm -hmm. kept on selling them for the rest of the game, and I just kept on casting that wind creature for like seven points at a time. It's finding combos like that that I think really drive this game home and are is the meat of the game. How about you, Pat? Yeah, combos, baby. I had a game similar to yours where this was yesterday morning. I went with pink cards. That should tell you how much we uh, we dive into the theme. I don't know. What are the pink ones? That's the wind creatures. That's what I That's did. The, okay, very similar. So I had one that made all of them two cheaper. And then I had another card that made everything one cheaper to cast. Then this one card costs four. And whenever you play it, you gain a point for each pink card. And then it returns to your hand. Same card. Dude, I had like three stones. And it, this thing only cost me one. So I go, play it. Give me seven points. It bounces to hand. Play it. Give me seven points. Bounces in. Play it again. 21 points. Then the other card that I drafted from the snake draft sold it. It gave me four pink stones. <laughs> so I went, play it, play it, play it, play it. I had something like 50 points in that one. I went from like 20 points to 75 in a turn. Game over. The other two people were in the 20s still. It's like, holy crap. That's where the magic in this game happens is you can go from zero to hero with the right mix of cards. What's interesting, where the meat of the game comes up is next time I play, those cards might not be seen. They might not be seen in the right order. And even if they are seen, somebody else might take one of those critical pieces. So I got to look at the other cards. Every one of these 70 cards is unique. And every one of them, I suspect, is a critical part of at least one engine or combo somewhere in the game. You know, and it's just depending on the setup and when you see stuff, that's where it's that that's where it's at. Now, there's a bit of hate drafting going on here. That you can't not mention that as you guys did. That's some of the meat of the game. You know, if you see a card that's going to help someone else's engine go, especially like in a two-player game, a hate draft is a it's a benefit for you. Whereas like in a four-player, an eight-player, like we used to do Magic the Gathering drafts, and I always I hated the concept of hate drafting because you're actively making one person's deck worse, and you're actively making your deck worse. Mm. 
And the other six people at the table, they just keep on rolling along, making their decks better. So you've effectively made one person worse and yourself. You said, fine, I will war of attrition myself out of this draft along with whoever would have used that planeswalker, right? In this game, though, it doesn't feel so bad. You can always sell the card for money. You can actively use it that turn and get some more stones. Let's move to bit number six, replayability and variability. Well, replayability and variability. Replayability, yes, it's there. Variability, it's there. Are they something that you have a vast, huge reservoir to go back to over and over and over? No, not really. But this, I don't think, is meant to be a cornerstone game of a game night. This is one that's couple people are done with one game, a couple people are done with another game, they want to play something before another game breaks out, this is what that kind of game is for. It's a fun game, but I think it would lose its luster unless they give an expansion with some more creatures a little bit down the road or anything, but I think that it, this is mostly going to be in that shelf space of here are the quick games that are easy to teach family, easy to teach at a church gathering or something like that. Something easy to get non-gamers into playing a game that's a little bit different. So I do see this game having a bit of replayability, at least for me. I want to play this game every so often and just try out that new combo of cards or run different strategies to see how many points I can get in one turn. I also see this having a stopping point. I don't want to play this game so much in just a span of a few days. If I want to come back to this game, I feel like it'd have to be maybe once every couple of weeks just to keep that drive going. Like, for example, to prepare for today, I've played this game maybe six times in the past couple of days, and I already want to hold it off for a while. Because I do think it's a good game. But variability looks like this, and you have to keep this in mind. There are 70 cards right now. And for each player in the game you can see up to 20 of them for each player. Mm -hmm. The discard pile would shuffle and the same cards are drawn if you get to that point in a max four-player game. So that means you're going to see all the cards in this game after like two or three plays, usually. Mm -hmm. And if you play it enough, you'll likely have a set of cards that works for you that you always go for. And if you look at it from that standpoint, variability in this is quite low. Scott, I'm going to bounce off of you. You did say it would benefit from an expansion, and I believe so. I believe it would, and I think this expansion needs to add quite a few cards or maybe even a probably a sixth faction or faction, yeah. element or something along those lines just to keep this a little bit better to come back to and so you don't see the same cards over and over and over and over again. Yeah, But that's just my uh, viewpoint on that, Pat. I think the thing that makes the game replayable is the fact that a card that breaks the game in one play might not do much of anything in the next play. So the we'll say the wind card that makes all of your pink cards cost two less. That was a critical part of that giant combo that just had me explode the last time I played. That said, if I see it next game and I start with that, because, oh, it did so many magical things, I start with that card, I might not have a whole lot of opportunities for pink cards. And the ones that I do have an opportunity for might not be that special. Or maybe I see one that is and someone else drafts it. Oh, man. So what do I do? How do I pivot? I think that's where... Where the replayability for me lies is that the card's power level varies wildly based on when they show up. Scott, we played earlier today. No, it was Ryan and I playing. Yep. Ryan, you started with the card that lets you keep two additional stones. 
Correct. That's really neat on turn one. That's really cool on turn one. It's probably not nearly as impressive on turn six. Maybe it is, you know, maybe in some games, depending on your card lineup, it is. But on turn one, I get to sell a card. Uh, I get to keep the stones from it. And this card's free and it lets me keep two additional. Wow, you're going to be able to cast a lot of things. I had that blue card that turns your three stones into six, or you can get rid of a six for three copies of a three stone. And it was like, wow. I'm a factory. I can play all the big stuff. And guess what? The big stuff didn't show up. Or when it did, you were smart enough to take it away from me. That's where the game's going to have some replay value. And that, like, every card in the right situation can be really cool. It just depends on how much you want to keep diving back at what, dipping into that well, trying to see what you can pull out of each individual card. Bit number seven, we look at the downsides of a game. King, what's a downside? Where, where do you say, uh, okay, pump the brakes? Where are we pumping the brakes on the Veil of Eternity? Well, I think we kind of went over it here with the replayability and variability is the small amount of cards that you have and the, um, the amount of times you can play until you see everything. It's based on luck. I mean, there's a lot of luck. Like you said, you may get that one card, you, that one game, and it worked out beautifully. And then you you draft that thing first turn. You're like, I'm going to be unstoppable. But you never get the other cards to help you out with that. So I think that it's a great game right now while it's new. But I think it's going to lose its luster as it goes through and you play it a little bit more, a little bit, little, little bit more. The small amount of cards you have based on the amount of players that you have. I think that's probably the biggest thing that makes a problem for this game. That's my biggest downside, is the lack of a large reservoir of cards to play off of. So you're going to say maybe a, a short shelf life? Yes, yes. Uh, Ryan, what do you think? Well, aside from the art difference between the two main boards on the table looking very sad, I think the biggest downside for me, <laughs> downside for me is that I personally believe that there are a few cards that are just overly powerful uh, especially for their costs or like for example water creatures i think are overpowered faction by themselves they have a lot of the overpowered cards because they're the best at getting you stones and making them better with just one or two cards just like that card that you had that turned to three to six or turning one six into three three stones that's yes, absurd exactly. oh, just yeah. for free it's like well you, here you can do that so you'll never really need to sell a card again once you have one or two of those cards because you can easily fill yourself out with those six-point stones or at least the equivalent of a six-point mm -hmm. stone. If you had one or two of those nice wind cards, like the one that gives you a point for every different card family at the end of every round because it's an hourglass effect, the yep. points generated just add up and it's just hard to catch up to that. When I was playing the Fire Faction, I thought I had four really beautifully synergistic cards. I had the one that gave me two extra slots. I had one that uh, every time I used a one-point stone, it would get me a point for every one that I used. I got one that I could play it, and it gives me two one-point stones. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I think it was like four one-point stones, and then it would like return to my hand. So I always had a reserve of one-point stones, and I would just keep on playing small cards. But even then... By the time the game ended, you were playing the blue and the water type, and you were playing the fairy type, just like you were talking about. And you won with, I want to say, like 70-something points while I was sticking around at 26. And I think that's because the fire cards are too slow, even though they seem fast. It's not like magic. No, fire is not <laughs> fire. Is no, no. They they're, they try for like a cheap uh, death by a thousand cuts game, and they only get you like for 400 cuts before yeah. you stomp on them. So I have a feeling that there's a lot of overpowered cards or a lot of overpowered combos where if you get like one or two pieces of them, you're good to go. 
you you can't be beaten. You can't be overpowered. You you just are going so fast because you are generating such high cost stones that you're able to buy the high cost creatures that give you a bunch of points or have an ongoing effect that just keeps on giving you these points. And so it's almost like all of the round in hourglass effects are the way to go in this game. I could be wrong. Like I said, I played six games, but in most of them, it seems that water is heavily used in all the ones that seem to win. And so I think there's like overpowered cards. That's that's my downside in this game. Again, I could be wrong. Well, six games in, yeah, it's, it's entirely possible that we're just wrong. But I did say kind of the same thing. I rephrase it. And for me, it's I think eventually players are going to hone in on like best strategies, or at least they're going to be able to calibrate the values of the cards. While all of them are good in the right situation, some of them are more narrow than others. That blue card that was pumping out my choice of a six zone or turn, uh, turn a three into a six or turn a six into three threes. That is miles better than probably 50 other cards in that deck. It, that's easy to identify and it takes no skill. And if I'm up for first pick in the round and it's round one and it's there, I am taking it. And well, there's just nothing anybody can do about that, which brings me to my second downside is I think sometimes in a game you just have a failure to launch uh, where, you know what, I, I'm picking cards at it's what's available. I got first pick and I got this thing that's decent. And the thing that came back to me at the end of the snake draft sucks. Okay, that's all right. I have round two. Ah, oh, neither of these helped me either. Everybody else is starting to build up on their engine and you're just kind of stuck. That said, there's not a whole lot to pick out here. I do think this is a tight system. It's a well-refined game and I'm having a lot of fun with it, which brings us to bit number eight. Was it fun? And who's it for? Well, yes, it was fun. It's it's kind of a, I don't know if I want to say a breath of fresh air. It's a breath of fresh air, but it's also kind of going back to a game that you feel like you've played before. It was fun. I think this is definitely for, uh, for gamers to have on their shelf for whenever they have non-gamers over or people who dabble in gaming a little bit. They want to get something a little bit different for them to play. It's not going to carry a lot of weight as far as strategy goes. But yeah, it's it, it's fun. And it's definitely going to be more on the lighter weight games that you're going to play and pull out for your friends to play. I think it is a fun game. I know I bashed on quite a few things, but all in all, it is actually a fun game. I think it's pretty much a game for anyone who likes engine building games that are not complicated. Like you might Mm -hmm. like this if you're a fan of Furnace or Gizmos, for example, although... I do prefer the gimmick of the marbles and gizmos, but either way, uh, I think this is for a very, very light person who wants to start up on like engine building games or already likes things like that. Pat? Mm-hmm. You know what? I like this. Uh, it's not going to blow me away, and it hasn't, but I do like it. And there's a value proposition here. This game is 25 bucks. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's, this <laughs> is a great game for 25 Who's it going to be for? There's some Shades of Seasons, uh, Shades of Gods Forge going on in there. If you like drafting, you like assembling an engine, yes, you're going to like it. I, f- I feel like this is a game that I can put in the bag. You ever have one of those like, okay, I'm going to my buddy's house. We have three hours and we're going to play a game that takes usually a little over two. And you finish at the two-hour mark and it's like, well, we've got an hour left and uh, oh, we can't play anything chunky. This is perfect. You know what? Let's. I'll put this in my bag in case we have that spare hour at yeah. the end of the day with the four of us. Man, you this is a good one. You're going to have a good time with it. 
And I'm glad to hear that we've all had a very good time with it. I will say I'm still playing. I've, I've done some games with randos and I think I'm going to keep playing it just at random. Not a good game to async on Board Game Arena, I came to find. It's really important to remember, like, <laughs> what are you trying to do? Boy, if, if they take a dragon that's like, somebody's got to lose one of their pink cards and you're playing async, you ain't never going to remember that they can kill your pink <laughs> card if you play it. <laughs> so, as a live play, oh, man, this, this game's great. And you know what? It's very good at two-player. It's very good at two-player. We've been doing three-player a whole bunch. Yeah. I think I like it better at two. You don't get to see as many cards, but you get to interact with each. Like, the draft is far more influential. You're never going to have, like, oh, man, how come he took that? And he left him with that. Why didn't he take this? No, it's you and the other person directly interacting. So that draft, like, what you're picking and what you're denying the other person is that much more important. Uh, I, I thought this game was a lot of fun. Agreed. The living gas has shattered. Madness is being drained from the inhabitants, and war has come to Wonderland. Alice, Mad Hatter, Red Queen, Jabberwock, and Cheshire Cat must gather all that they can while playing nice at the Hatter's tea party before going to battle. One year ago today, we Scott, that was really good. I'm impressed. Well, I <laughs> One year ago today, we had the opportunity to play and review Wonderland's War. This one right now sits at 209 overall on Board Game Geek and the new Shards of Madness expansion. I just got that in the mail. I can't wait to table this thing again. Scott, one year later, Wonderland's War. Give me some thoughts. It was one we played. It it was uh, such an odd thing that we played the game twice. We played it. We took it down. We're like, no, let's play it again. We played it again right away. It was fun. It was not earth-shattering for me. I had a good time playing it, but I can understand why certain people really gravitate towards this, and they really enjoy it. But for me, it just did not large... Hey, let's go back to Marie Kondo. It did not spark joy. It sparked an erection for me. <laughs> oh, I, I know. I know. You're quite happy playing this I game. can't say that. Well, yeah, we'll have to cut that, too. I was about to say, if I can't do the semen tits thing. <laughs> <laughs> right off the deep end. Wonderland's War is fantastic. I love it so much. This thing sits in my top 10 games of all time. Dude, the drafting phase with the variability of the cards that you're picking, you're moving all around that tea party, you're trying not to take on too much madness. That's exciting. The battle phase is exciting. Putting chips into the bag is exciting. Pulling them out is exciting. Getting to upgrade your character, build castles on the board. There's so much going on in this game that just, oh, it's a pat game. I love it. It's contentious. You are battling with people. You're pressing your luck as you're pulling things out. You're upgrading chips. The Wonderlandian cards make this game. I just said a whole lot of things in like the span of 30 seconds. You know what the X factor was for Wonderland's War for me is the Wonderlandians cards. The fact that you're able to pick those cards and they're either going to put a character into one of those areas of the board to fight for you with an asymmetric ability and they're all unique. They're going to do something wildly different. It's going to shape your play or the chips that you're getting to add into your bag. Whenever you take something like the looking glass, you get a couple of chips and they do something unique that only your bag has. You can get unique. You start off that way, asymmetric because of your character. And then the way that you upgrade your character is going to make you a, a little bit more unique. And what you're removing whenever you pull forge chips, that's going to make you different. 
and then the chips that you're adding to your bag from the Wonderlandies. By the end of the game, you're totally different in your capabilities compared with everyone else to the extent that I've played games where I'm not trying to win the battles. I'm just trying to be in them and I want to end at the forge spot and I want to pull as many roses as I can to score two points per plus my unicorns in that fight. So I'm going to get some points there too. It's different every time I play and yet it's the same enough. You can go in having an idea of what you're trying to do and then based on what comes out, you got to be able to pivot and, you know, kind of think tactically, oh, this is going to change my game a little bit. I like that. I played it once, maybe about a year ago when it first came out. Mm -hmm. Uh, The whole idea of a bag builder that's a push your luck mechanic just threw me uh, through my mind for a loop. I I really, really wanted to try this game. I think the problem with my first play and my only play at this point in time is that I played it again, two handed solo against myself. And this game, I feel like shines at a higher player count um, because of all these places that you're trying to vie for. And absolutely. Yeah. Additional cards that you can, you can play with uh, in a four player game. And, I just really want to play this again. Give it another shot because of your guys' glowing reviews. Well, specifically, Pat's. Scott mm-hmm. liked it a lot enough. But it seems like since everyone's getting their second edition copy with that little expansion that came with it, that I will be able to do that soon enough. And so I'm looking forward to trying it out. One year later, King, you're uh, you're not as, as hyped on this. I'm obviously saying I recommend oh, it. Yeah. I think it's a fantastic, fantastic game. You got to be okay with uh, with coming to fisticuffs with the other players at the table. You know, if you have someone that gets grumpy whenever they get attacked, yeah, well, this might not be for your group. I'm recommending it. King, what do you think? Wonderland's War. Is this one that you would uh, want to get into the hands of gamers? I would say definitely recommend it to play this. It is unique. It gives you a lot of options here. It is very colorful, very vibrant when you look at it. Everyone should play this game and make your own decision on it. I think you need to play this game first. That's my opinion there. Once again, looking at how many episodes we've gone, I think people should know what my likes are and what your likes are. And whichever side you gravitate towards, that will make your decision on whether you should buy it sight unseen. Not to mention so, the but, fact that it's not a very cheap game either. <laughs> oh, that, that is a factor. That's a fact. Now, you can get a deluxe version that has plastic chips and miniatures, or you can get the base version, which has cardboard chips and standees. It is a bit cheaper than going deluxe. You, it can be found for 50 or 60 bucks. but whenever people post their pictures, and you see all these painted minis on the board, and you see you know all these, these big clinky plastic chips, they spend a lot of money for it. Hola and bon dia, adventurers! It's Navigator Leno with Game Trotting, the segment of Level Up where we pack our meeples and travel the world. I'm taking you over the Atlantic today, so get your meeples passports ready. We are going to a coastal country and explore Portugal, also known as the country of Azulejos. Portugal is one of Europe's oldest nations, having established its borders in 1139. This same year, they appointed their first king, Afonso I, who still holds the record of the longest reigning monarch for a whopping 73 years and 220 days. Portugal also holds the tied record of shortest reigning monarch, Luis Philippe, who unfortunately was only king for 20 minutes. In Lisbon, specifically the Alfama district, we'll wander through a maze, and I mean a literal maze, of narrow streets and keep climbing up the center and discover Castelo de São Jorge, an ancient castle still standing. There are multiple castles around Lisbon, but Castelo de São Jorge is one of the more popular castles to visit in Lisbon. 
They say the maze of roads to get up to the castle center made it more difficult for any intruders to approach. Alfama is known for its popular street art, so traveling through here, you'll see street art scattered throughout the district walls. The area of Lisbon has a ton of history. A tragic but important day that is still remembered was on November 1st, 1755, when Lisbon was struck with a massive quake that seismologists estimate was between a 7.7 and 8.5, collapsing many of the buildings in the city. Shortly after, a six-meter tsunami barreled through the city and furthered the destruction, taking the lives of tens of thousands of people. It's known as one of the deadliest natural disasters in history. As sad as it is, this tragedy plays an important part in history. Lisbon's efforts to rebuild their city is known as one of the first efforts of urban disaster planning. From then on, anything rebuilt in the city was designed to much better withstand the natural disasters of earthquakes and tsunamis. That's something that even into modern times now, many countries have building codes to withstand natural disasters, thanks to Portuguese reconstruction efforts. Now back to some lighter stories. It's in Lisbon we find the oldest still-operating bookstore, called Bertrand Bookstore. It was established in 1732 and is still running out of its original building. Even more remarkable was that this place survived the Great Lisbon Earthquake of 1755. Bertrand Bookstore is a tourist hotspot for all the book lovers of the world. A little further inland into Portugal, we're going to stop in the region of Alentejo for some unique history about wine corks. This region is home to the oldest and largest cork tree at 230 years old, the Whistler tree, as well as many other cork trees. Portugal produces about half of the world's cork wine stoppers at about 40 million a day. Cork trees are so valuable in Portugal, they have been protected since 1209. The Whistler tree produced enough cork for 100,000 bottles of wine on its last harvest. Even to harvest the cork from these trees, it is such a delicate process that a simple hand axe is still used today to carefully remove the outer bark of the cork tree. Next time you pop open a bottle of wine, take a look at your cork. It may very well have come from a tree in Portugal. Also inland of Portugal is Fatima, a famous site that 8 million people make as a religious pilgrimage each year. The story here is that in 1917, three young children of Fatima witnessed the apparition of Mary multiple times over the course of six months, followed by 70,000 people during the last apparition. It was later deemed an official miracle from the Catholic Church. Even after 100 years, this is still an extremely beloved site. People from all over the world come to visit Fatima, and it continues to gain popularity. Back along the coast, let's go along the sea and witness what some of the coast has to offer. Glancing over these cliffs, there are parts of the rock formations that jut out from the ocean, and there is something quite amazing out on those cliffs. Massive birds' nests. Storks don't frequent beaches for their nests, but even these birds can't resist the beauty of Portugal's seaside either. They love to build nests along these cliffs, and they are massive in size, usually about 9 feet deep and 6 feet wide. These coastal towns aren't just popular from the storks. They have gained immense popularity among surfers over the last decade as well. Surfer Garrett McNamara broke the record for riding a nearly 100-foot wave twice, once in 2011 and again in 2013, on the beach of Nazaré. In Cabo Sardau, there's a lighthouse that was built in 1915. That doesn't seem too unusual, does it? Well, not until you look at the direction of the lighthouse and see it's facing in the opposite direction that every other lighthouse does. Most lighthouses are close to the cliff or seaside, and they have this long annex building behind it. This one has the building along the seaside and then the lighthouse. Rumor has it that the builder accidentally rotated the blueprint upside down when beginning construction. By the time they caught the mistake, it was too late and they left it the way it was. Well, are you hungry talking about all these places around Portugal? We should stop by Pastes de Belém back in Lisbon. 
In this bakery, we'll find the original pastèche de nata, which is a sweet custard tart. Belém has kept this recipe a secret for 185 years when they bought the recipe from Geronimo's monastery and is currently only known by three pastry chefs. They bake about 20,000 of these delicacies each day. You can find other pastèche de nata throughout Portugal, but we're told that Belém Bakery offers the best. If you're not a fan of sweets, there's a savory meat dish that will make your mouth water called a francina. A sandwich filled with ham, sausage, and steak covered with melted cheese and poured with a hot sauce of beer or wine and sometimes topped with a fried egg. I think I'm ready to walk off this food coma from this meal. You'll notice on the buildings throughout Portugal, many are covered in these intricately designed tiles. It's so popular, Portugal is nicknamed the country of azulejos, or translated as the country of tiles. These blue and white ceramic tiles came about in the 14th century and began covering Portuguese buildings, streets, houses, monuments, basically everywhere. As beautiful as they are, the original purpose was to protect the walls from low temperatures. It was just an added perk that they're so beautiful. In 2013, Portugal made it forbidden to demolish any building with the tiles covering them because the azulejos are so ingrained into Portuguese culture now. Speaking of azulejos, here's a good time to take a short little rest and play a game. You've probably guessed by now, I'm getting out Azul today. Azul was released in 2017 and published by Next Move Games. It's a game most board gaming hobbyists are familiar with, but there's still something about Azul that so many people love to this day. Azul is a tile-placing game based on the history of Portugal's Azulejos. You are working on building your own palace tile wall design against your opponents, competing to create the best design or, you know, endgame points. Grab tiles, design them with a specific pattern, and gain the most points. What I love about this game is how you can easily teach this to your non-gamer friends and they quickly fall in love with the beauty and creativity, yet relaxed feel of the game. Well, it's mostly relaxing until someone takes your tiles you're trying to use to fill your wall and maybe yell, hey, I was going to take those. Now you have to wait and hope that more are going to be produced. Really though, I find this game to be such a great game to get your mind thinking, but still provides enough of a relaxing environment to chat among your family and friends. Even with our hobby gamers, there's still a love in the community for it, especially with so many different game variations they have released over the years to keep it fresh. I find Azul embraces not only the look of Portuguese history with the Azulejos, but also the laid-back Portuguese culture. Pop open a bottle of wine and bring on the pastéis de nata as we sit around creating some tile masterpieces. I have one more story for you from Portuguese lore about Costa de Caparica. There was a legend that said a frail old woman used to wander the streets of the town in a colorful patchwork cape, mostly to protect herself from the cold. She panhandled among the streets and all around the area, locals assumed she was a witch. After some time of not seeing her around, the villagers went to check on her. They discovered she passed away, still wrapped in her colorful cape and holding a letter addressed to the king. She asked him to build a church for the local people. The king dismissed this, assuming she had no money, and ordered them to destroy the cape, but before they could destroy it, they had an astonishing discovery. The cape was full of gold, so much it was falling out of the cape. It was enough to build a church, which the king followed through with, and from then on they named the cape Capa, meaning cape, and Rica, meaning rich, and now the region is known as Capa Rica. Portugal is full of beauty and amazing stories, and I had a wonderful time sharing this with you. Sometimes we get to travel the world and have great adventures together, and sometimes we experience the best laughs and stories together around the game table. Until we meet again, Game Trotters, this is Navigator Lena, and I'll see you on our next trip.
Azul is a great game, and I haven't had a chance to get to Portugal, but I've heard it's very, uh, very nice, and I'd love to try and get there sometime. Yeah, Azul is one of those games that, like, it's one of my go-to games when it comes to, like, a light abstract game. Just like you were talking about a little bit earlier, if you have like an hour to kill, perhaps, I think Azul is a good placement in there as well, like a like a cool down kind of game. It's still one of my favorite games to go to as far as those are kinds of things are concerned. I'm not huge abstract, but this is probably the best one of those in my opinion. Actually, according to Board Game Geek, it's abstract. It's ranked number two. Wow, what's number one? Cascadia? Okay. What? Mm. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Azul wins. <laughs> Yinch is number three. Y i n s h. Yinch. Day. Scott, have you played Yinch? Oh, Yinish. Yeah. yeah what Yinish? Uh, actually, I thought it was called Yinish. Yeah. No, no, no. No, no, no. Yinish is the um, the Celtic Irish. Right, yeah, no, uh, I have that here, but I thought it was like pronounced that way as well. No, yeah, they have it have at SCG, that. and I keep looking at Yinch, and I'm like, this looks like junk, but it's abstract rank number three. Oh, yeah. Y i n s h. Yeah, it's a deep one. You can really get lost in that game. It's very, very interesting. Yeah, I have not played okay. any of them. There's like Dijon and there's like uh, Yar or whatever it's called. I don't remember. <laughs> Guys, <laughs> we're, we're going way off. <laughs> well, okay, let's bring it back to Azul and th- then we'll close it out. I, I searched, uh, if you go to the top 100 abstracts, Azul is ranked number two. Azul Summer Pavilion is ranked number five. Azul Stained Glass of Citra is ranked number 16. Azul Queen's Garden is ranked number 15, and Azul Master Chocolatier is ranked number 9. So in the abstract category of Board Game Geek, there are six different versions of Azul in the top 20. Whatever one you choose to play or whatever one you like, do not eat any of the components. That's all. All right, guys, we did it. We reached the end of episode 119 of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. And as we always do, we're going to talk about how we leveled up since the last time we got together. Ryan, you're the guest. The floor is yours. All right. Thank you for joining me for this episode there, Patrick and Scott. Uh, Oh, it's our pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for having us. (laughs) I love having you guys. Don't worry. Um, All right. So my level up is, all right, it's been years, but I've decided to finally start recording my plays using BG Stats again. Now, I've been on BG Stats before on and off for a little while. For example, in 2021, I used it to record any new plays that I had done for my challenge that I was doing at the time. So I made a challenge to play 365 uniquely titled games that had a play time of at least 30 minutes. That way I didn't cheat by playing Yahtzee or whatever. And that's all I used it for. Mm-hmm. Uh, I managed to complete that challenge, and that's how I started doing better as far as learning games is concerned. That's also when we first talked. That's right. Now, though, I want to actually keep a record of all my plays for nostalgic purposes and because my memory is crap lately. And I know how Scott feels now, so I just wanted to start using BG stats. Now, I know there's a lot of people who have BG stats that wouldn't consider this as a level up, but hey, I do. That's what matters. Thank you very much for having me again. Scott, what do you got to say? My level up was the last episode that we had that Patrick ran solo with. I was a bit under the weather mentally, to be honest. I went back on Friday to substitute at uh, the Indian Area High School. It did so much for my mental well-being, seeing those kids saying hi, walking Aww. through the hallways and having them say, hey, Mr. Walton. And it was just such a great feeling, and it did so much for my soul and my heart. You just really feel good. So it's partly a level up for me and a big level up for the students at uh, at the high school. They really did a lot to get me out of my funk, and I'm very, very appreciative. 
Well, you know, it's only a matter of time until one of these students are like, you're King Scott. <laughs> Somebody's got to be listening. To be like, I heard you. You're a nerd. Well, I was at the, the gym one day and some guy stopped me and goes, did you play King Henry? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> what are the odds? <laughs> Guys, my level up's a simple one. Uh, so if one of the things that Santa got for my daughter for Christmas was a snow tube. And I've been waiting because we didn't get any snow last year. I was like, I think she's going to have a blast. Now, she's she's kind of reserved. I don't think of her as one to do things that are like potentially dangerous or potentially frightening or scary in any capacity. And not that snow tubing is, but we got some big hills here around Twin Lakes Park. So tonight, fine. I got home from work and I've been telling, I've been planting this seed in here. I was like, oh, you just wait, honey. We're going to go to the hills. We're going to do some real snow tubing. So tonight we got to do that. We're going down the hills. And, you know, she's like, I, I want to sit on the back and I'm going to hold on to you. And then finally, she's like, I'll sit in the front, but you have to hold on to me. And then finally she's like, Dad, I think I'm going to – I want to go down alone. I want to go on my own. And she did, which was cool. We're on the ride home and my level up. I was like, did you have a good time tonight, hon? She was like, this was like the best day ever. <laughs> and then she pauses. She's like, well, maybe the best Hello? night. I've had better full days, but this is the best night ever. <laughs> 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 I've been looking forward to it, hoping that she'd have a blast. And I'm sure parents listening, you know that like – Sometimes you're let down, but man, whenever you you have this idea of something that they're really going to enjoy and then they do, it's so fulfilling. So I got that. That's my level up. Adventures, <laughs> don't forget, check out Onboard Games Podcast, specifically episode 529 if you want to hear more of me. January 28th is going to be our meetup at SCG Hobby in Latrobe. Get on back to last week's episodes, the best games of 2023. Guys, we shot down a list of something like 50 games jam-packed into that episode. King, you get the last word. Tell me we lost Scott before All the right, last well, word. I'm going to go King, back. You Your body is like day-old rice. If it ain't warmed up properly, something real bad could happen. Thank you, adventurers, for joining us for this episode of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. That's where you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes and the Heatley Brothers. And remember, whether in hobby or in life, always do what you can to level up.